HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the New York Women's Culinary Alliance. Interestingly enough, the thing with the Brooklyn Borough specifically is that it actually houses, I believe, five of the uh, the neighborhoods with the lowest rate responses in the country, just based off of the previous census. What's the effect of an undercounted neighborhood? There are 55 public programs in New York City that are dependent on this related funding, and that ranges from free lunch programs, um, senior citizen centers, uh, public housing, and so forth. So it could possibly provide a, a, a real negative impact. Natasha Ishak is a reporter who's covering the upcoming census. It happens once every 10 years, and people are already mobilizing to get out the count in 2020. Stay tuned to the end of this show to hear more about the issues that make this census one to pay attention to, especially in HRN's home neighborhood of Bushwick. My name is Kat Johnson. This is Meet and 3, Season 4, and this week our show is about our home borough of Brooklyn. Meet and 3. Meet and 3. Meet and 3. One meet, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet and 3. It's a brand new season here at HRN, which means we have brand new shows in our lineup. We'll be introducing them to you over the next few weeks. First up is Bushwick Podcast. By bringing this innovative, hyper-local podcast into the network, we're strengthening our connection to the neighborhood that HRN's called home for 10 years. You'll hear from Luke Griffin, the podcast host, in just a minute. But for our first story, Dylan Hoyer takes a look at how food businesses have helped shape Bushwick over the past decade. Bushwick's borders were first defined by the British monarchy in the 17th century, when Brooklyn was officially partitioned from Queens. But disputes over Bushwick's perimeter persisted for decades. While you can still visit Arbitration Rock, where a host of problems were settled in 1769, Bushwick's borders and its identity have remained in flux. Following the Great Depression, Bushwick was rezoned and many properties were grossly devalued as a result of their proximity to black neighborhoods. This phenomenon is known as redlining and led the area's longtime German and Italian residents to flee for the suburbs. Bushwick underwent another identity crisis in 1977 after it was nearly destroyed by massive fires during a citywide blackout. Today, it's gentrification that Bushwick residents must grapple with 
and the community's Black and Latinx residents are being hit hardest. Although many businesses are booming and new apartment complexes are quickly filling up, rent prices are soaring, and the neighborhood's existing community is at risk of being pushed out. How can we work together to, to make sure that we're building a, a Brooklyn that is inclusive to everyone? That's City Council Member Rafael Espinal, who represents several neighborhoods in North Brooklyn, including Bushwick. The challenge he poses here has perhaps been the most prominent issue he's faced in serving on the City Council since 2013. To better understand the predicament Bushwick faces, we can trace the neighborhood's evolution over the past decade, starting with the arrival of new businesses. Well, the role of businesses in shaping Bushwick uh, is a big one. It's no secret that, you know, over the past five, ten years, there has been a higher influx in, you know, new restaurants and, and new bars at levels that the community has never seen before. Uh, I would say that 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 in itself has created a community that's a lot more attractive to all types of New Yorkers, which is what helped make Bushwick so popular. Many credit Roberta's Pizza for putting Bushwick on the map drawing new businesses and consumers to an area that was largely industrial at the time. This is Brandon Hoy, one of the co-founders and current owners of Roberta's. I guess like 2005, 2006, there was a lot of artists, a lot of musicians. Back then, there wasn't a lot of amenities for anyone who lived around here. So like you could live in this neighborhood, but there wasn't a lot for you to do. So that was attractive for us. We, we really just tried to build a, a restaurant that was a watering hole for, for like-minded people. Nearly 15 years later, many makers remain attracted to the area's artistic character and its affordability compared to other neighborhoods. This is Daniel Sklar, the founder of Fine and Raw Chocolate, which moved to Bushwick in 2012. I mean, the neighborhood is slightly cheaper, so I think it allows for freedom of expression more than the rest of New York, where, you know, if, if you're grinding 24-7 to make your rent, it doesn't leave a lot of time for artistic expression. Patrick Martins admits that when he founded Heritage Radio Network in Bushwick a decade ago, he didn't anticipate the changes that were to come. But from his perspective, there's no stopping it now. The city is its own beast, New York City. It's its own beast, and every few years it changes. Every second it's changing. Others resist the idea that this trend is irreversible. And if Bushwick's trajectory can be shifted, in what way should people strive to shape the community? Heather Rush is the owner of two bars in Bushwick and would like to see greater equality when it comes to economic stimulation. I, I still find a lot of owner-operated businesses, which makes me happy. That said, I don't know if you've ever walked up uh, Knickerbocker recently, but there are shuttered store after shuttered store after shuttered store. They are employed by local people. They're owned by local people. And they're just shutting down. You know, when we talk about gentrification, we talk about housing, which is an important conversation that we need to have. But we also, when we talk about gentrification, we should talk about local jobs and small businesses. So any kind of conversation we have to need about protections against gentrification, sort of stripping the soul and character out of a neighborhood, needs to include small business owners. Recognizing the power business owners have to define Bushwick's character, Maria Harone founded Milmundo's Books a bilingual bookstore with a mission to serve Bushwick's existing community. It is a larger scale anti-gentrification project to literally hold down space and focus on the neighborhood that's already here. I would say that improving a neighborhood is always well and good, but it turns into gentrification when it's not for the neighborhood that's already there, when it's for a new neighborhood of people that 
can pay a certain dollar amount that have arrived with a certain level of privilege and empowering the neighborhood that's already there and trying to undo systemic challenges is never a priority or a thought. The question of who Bushwick businesses serve rests at the heart of this debate. Finding pathways for integrating newcomers with the existing community may be the best chance Bushwick has for further growth that won't displace longtime residents. Here's City Council Member Rafael Espinal again, who's working strategically to pass affordable housing initiatives, legislate rent control, and encourage community engagement. We, we have to find ways where we can all work together to create these opportunities. Uh, there, there is no silver bullet. The next year will likely bring answers to highly anticipated questions facing Bushwick. Netflix recently announced that it will be moving a major production facility to the neighborhood. And competing plans for rezoning the area are up for debate, which could make the difference between the development of affordable housing projects or luxury high-rises. In the meantime, Bushwick's identity hangs in the balance. And now we turn our attention from Bushwick's past to its future. Luke Griffin, host of Bushwick Podcast, brings us another story about our rapidly changing neighborhood. Meet and Three's home, Bushwick, Brooklyn, is one of New York City's most diverse and dynamic neighborhoods. But it's also one of its fastest gentrifying, and in many ways, most vulnerable. Like other working-class communities of color throughout Brooklyn, Bushwick faces significant disparities in both food access and diet-related health outcomes. But there are organizations throughout the community, from food nonprofits to healthy restaurants, that are working to reverse these trends and make fresh, healthy foods more accessible than ever for Bushwick's residents. We have an uphill battle, and we also strive to work with the small to mid-level farmers who are going through similar battle. And by doing so, we create allies and partners and a, a community. And the community is so much more than just the four walls of our store. Uh, the impacts are also so much bigger than what we are even able to see by just buying your groceries. That's Fran Sanweza, general manager of one organization that's been quietly pushing the boundaries of food access in Bushwick for nearly a decade. It's a local grocery store that's tackling food justice with a surprising solution, democracy. Well, what I usually do when people come in for the first time is I give them the tour of the whole store. So like... The store has the staples you would expect from a traditional grocer, from milk and eggs to pasta and peanut butter, in addition to harder-to-find items like wild-caught fish and fresh local mushrooms, all hand-picked and at prices that are hard to beat. Shoppers here know that no matter what they're buying, their shopping bags will align with their tastes, their values, and their budgets. And the reason they know is because they're the ones who stock the shelves. This is the Bushwick Food Cooperative a grocery store owned, operated, and patronized by a growing group of people who collectively oversee every aspect of the market, elevating consumers and workers to a more civically engaged, mission-driven community. The member owners are the ones who like build and run the co-op. They have a say, they have a voice, and they're heard. So yeah, I think it's a, a place where you feel like you participate, you actually own something. While the co-op now counts nearly 400 member owners, one of their key challenges is ensuring that, as a service for the Bushwick community, the people calling the shots reflect the neighborhood. I would say the majority of the people who are members of our co-op definitely have a certain purchasing power, are mostly white, and we are trying to change that. As a business operated by people who largely devote just three hours a month to the organization, that can be a bit slow moving. 
But the co-op is taking important steps, like holding anti-oppression trainings and building partnerships with Bushwick community organizations to understand how it can align its ownership and its offerings with the community that it's built to serve. Yet, for all that the co-op is doing, perhaps the most important thing is the simplest. Listening. It's a, definitely a harder question to answer, and some of our folks on our outreach committee are going to start some surveying projects soon where they're going to actually go door to door and like chat people up. And So I think that it, it will take us a while to be fully, you know, to have a, a more like diverse membership base. Hopefully not that long, uh, but I think we're making really big changes to accommodate that. We are so excited to welcome Luke and Bushwick Podcast to Heritage Radio Network. Check out past episodes and be sure to subscribe on your podcast app of choice to stay up to date on what's going on in our neighborhood. We've got even more Brooklyn stories coming up, but first, a quick word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by the New York Women's Culinary Alliance a vibrant and supportive community of professional women who work in all areas of the food, beverage, and hospitality worlds, and come together to network, learn, and share their passion. Membership is only open once a year, every spring, so now is the time to join. The deadline is Friday, May 31st. Visit nywca.org for more details. Welcome back to Meet and Three. This week's show is all about Brooklyn. And next up, Hannah Forden brings us a story of transformation, both personal and political, from one of our borough's leaders. I think out of tragedy um, comes opportunity and probably the, uh, the greatest motivator of change is a tragic moment. And I won't even say tragedy. I like to say a Shakespearean tragedy where the irony is just so deep that you have to have a moment of reflection. For Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, that moment, that Shakespearean tragedy, arrived when he received a diagnosis of highly advanced type 2 diabetes, accompanied by what was thought to be permanent nerve damage and rapidly deteriorating vision. Based on the food that I ate, it was just an aha moment. And it was a moment of, you know, how do you make a decision on you know, the type of life you want to live and the type of life you don't want to live. He was struck with a choice. Either take insulin for the rest of his life and contend with the possibility of complete blindness and further nerve damage, or make some big changes. As I started to look into it, it was like, all I got to do you know, is eat differently and I can actually reverse my nerve damage and reverse all of the other uh, side effects of having a very advanced case of diabetes. To me, it was a walk in the park. It wasn't even a decision. It was like that was my moment of, you know, wow, someone has thrown me a life raft and I'm going to take it. Before this aha moment, Adams, a former cop, didn't put much thought into what he ate. I think I was more uh, caloric than nutritional. I wanted to make sure I got the right amount of calories, and nutrition was probably one of the last last things on my mind for the most part. I knew of the concept that make sure you get your fruits and vegetables, but there was no connection. 
He shifted to a completely plant-based diet, and within months, one by one, Adam's vision returned. His nerve damage was repaired. And the diabetes? Gone. You have to push the pause button and say, I must take care of me. This transformation led the borough president to prioritize self-care. And as one of the top leaders in New York City, a place where never taking a break is the ultimate status symbol, that's pretty radical. When you really reflect, when I started to say, okay, listen, you have to hit the pause button during the day to take care of you. So I take time to cook my food, prepare my food. And it's because it's therapeutic, it gives me the energy. I feel good about myself. So when I sit in a meeting with people, I'm also giving them that same level of energy that I feel good. When I finish my meal, I'm like, yes. You know, I just gave my body the things that it needs. And I know I gave it to them. There's no guess. Uh, I am putting together, when I take that handful of kale and throw it into my soup with a handful of carrots or mushrooms, I know what I'm giving myself. And so when I finish the meal, I did my best friend a favor, my body, by giving it what it needs. I stopped starving my friend. Eric Adams is translating his health journey into policy changes that will benefit his constituents. There is a crisis in the country, and New York is probably the epicenter of that crisis because we're such a large city and we're extremely diverse. And Brooklyn really personifies the in energy of the, not only the diversity of the people who are here, but also the diversity of the crisis. Borough Hall and Mayor Bill de Blasio's office are working together to foster a culture of healthy eating in government-run spaces ranging from schools to homeless shelters. So we want to look everywhere where government is feeding people to say, we're not going to feed you and the crisis. We're going to pick one of the two, and that is to feed you and give people um, healthy alternatives, use the teaching moments in schools so our children can learn um, how to grow food, how to serve it in their cafeterias, and how to go home and have a conversation with their parents about healthy eating. From setting New York's urban farms up for success to sharing information on meetups for vegans of color on the Borough Hall website, Eric Adams is on a mission to share information and empower Brooklynites. Um, one day at a time. You, you know, food has the same addictive qualities as anything that is addictive to us. And take one day at a time. And don't worry about, you know, if you have a bad day, tomorrow brings us a good day. But just steadfast and committed. If people just start off with something as a meatless Monday to see that, wow, I didn't have meat on Monday and I actually woke up on Tuesday. <laughs> you know, it, it says that, you know what, you are not going to die, you know, and that is important. One day at a time, just if, if that's your victory, then you could go to three days a week. Then you could go to five days a week and eventually you're going to find out your taste buds adjusted. Keep an eye out for Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams' cookbook coming out in 2020. We're doing a book on cooking and um, how... 
plant-based lifestyle impacts all the, the uh, people, but specifically we're going to focus on the African-American and Caribbean community, communities of color, how you know this is not a issue that's outside their community. We want to really connect the health with eating. So far in this episode, we've only talked about the humans of Brooklyn. For our last story this week, Aaliyah Papes and Pauline Munch introduce us to some special Brooklyn residents that are causing quite a buzz in the world of rooftop farms. I like working with these just because they're just so fascinating. Um, just reading about their social structure and how they work is what first got me really, really into bees. Once I started working with them, it was uh, eye-opening because I realized how much more I had to learn. You know, there's still so much more to learn about bees. Meet Renell St. Jour. Well, my name is Renell. Uh, I work at City Growers. I'm the program coordinator, and I'm also the beekeeper for City Growers. I was born in Haiti, but I was raised in Brooklyn. If you live in Brooklyn, you've probably heard of Brooklyn Grange, an urban agriculture company that farms on New York City rooftops. But you may not have heard of their spin-off nonprofit, City Growers. So during the growing season from the beginning of April to mid-November, we're running farm workshops. So we're having public schools and also a few colleges come up to learn about urban agriculture, to learn about uh, bees, uh, chickens, composting, uh, just growing a garden. Rennell was in full beekeeping gear when he met to talk, wearing white coveralls and a hood covered with netting. He was nice enough to stop by our studio while he was in the middle of delivering bees for a special program at City Growers, the Brooklyn Bee Corps. That program, it, uh, the purpose of it is to train those students, those high school students, to be proficient in beekeeping and managing native uh, plant sites. Rennell and the students work on hives at the Brooklyn Naval Cemetery Landscape, a native plant site near the Brooklyn Navy Yard. They take basically a whole journey through beekeeping. So they work on making sure that the hive is healthy, the colony is healthy. They work on extracting honey, uh, making labels for the honey. We try to take a really big, wide approach with that, um, get, give them entrepreneur skills in that program, give them beekeeping skills, and um, give them uh, native plant management and landscaping skills. Growing up, Rennell got more and more into outdoor education. With the guidance of city growers, Rennell was able to learn all about the science and art of beekeeping. Now, Rennell takes care of city grower hives at the Naval Cemetery Landscape, as well as hives at a local public school and another at Brooklyn Grange. So if you're just getting, if you're just starting off and you're getting bees, you'll usually get packages, um, which are just uh, a box of about three pounds of bees and a queen in there. And you'll usually get those early April, and then the nukes will be coming around now. So today I picked up my nukes. Nuke, spelled N-U-C, is short for nucleus colony or nucleus hive. They're packages of bees that include a queen who has already laid some eggs, giving beekeepers a little head start into the season. We asked Rennell how kids from Brooklyn schools have reacted to the hives. Well, over the years, I've definitely seen a small shift. The students that are re revisiting, they definitely uh, know what's up with the bees. They're calm around the bees. They know that the bees aren't going to sting them. He says, as long as you stay calm and don't make any sudden gestures, bees usually aren't interested in stinging you. They're just investigating. You might have a bright color. You might uh, smell very nice florally. 
So once they realize that you're not a flower, you don't have nectar and pollen, they'll definitely leave. They're vegetarians, so they don't have a hunter mindset. They have more so of a gathering mindset. One student from last year's Brooklyn Bee Corps was especially inspired by the program. This year, he's starting his own rooftop hive in Brooklyn, all with Rennell's support. Yeah, once you go through that program, I'm your mentor, so you know I'm definitely going to be there for you after that. Like his own mentors, Rennell works to bring kids closer to the outdoors and connect them to nature. There's just so many positive uh, benefits to having green spaces around the city. Even though they mostly see concrete all day, there are some patches of green space. And I want them to appreciate that and hopefully in the future create more of that. If you're a high schooler in Brooklyn, you can apply to the Brooklyn Bee Corps. City Growers also offers a long list of programs for all ages, including farm workshops, after-school programs, professional development courses, and a conference for educators. City Growers is also fundraising right now for their summer program in Sunset Park. To help a student get access to urban agriculture education this summer, you can go to citygrowers.org donate. That's our show this week. As promised, stay tuned after the credits for more on the upcoming 2020 census. Make sure you subscribe to Meet in 3 so you're the first to get all new episodes every Friday afternoon. If you love Meet in 3, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Share the love. It's the Brooklyn way. Special thanks this week to Dylan Hoyer, Aaliyah Papes, Pauline Munch, and Luke Griffin. Meet in 3 is produced by Liza Hamm, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Kat Johnson, with lead production for this episode by Hannah Forden. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. One of the biggest reasons I was interested in covering um, the census and how organizations in the city and state governments were trying to count populations better is really because there was a lot of talk around the upcoming census. especially compared to the 2010 census that had happened. One of the experts that I spoke to, basically he told me that um, there was a huge difference that he noticed um, in terms of the public response when it came to uh, approaching and getting the communities prepared for the census. Once again, this is Natasha Ishawk, a reporter for the Bushwick Daily. One of the important reasons why it's so important that local and community organizations are being involved in the census outreach rather than just, you know, relying on city and state governments to do it is really it comes down to trying to reach long-term residents or residents that might not be able to reach otherwise through, you know, very local Uh, places where residents congregate, for instance, like local churches, local mosques, local bodegas, community centers, that sort of thing. It's really just a method to try to reach as many of local residents as possible um, in a very micro, like hyper-local sense. Local organizations realize that getting out the count may be even more challenging this time around as many residents are nervous about the proposed addition of a citizenship question. I talked to the director of the upcoming census for New York City, Julie Menon, who, you know, was dubbed the um, census czar. During our conversation, she was very passionate about making that point across that 
one of the things that made galvanizing New Yorkers for the census so important is being a city that has a high population of immigrants and foreign-born residents and citizens. She just wanted to make sure, and the city just wanted to make sure that that you know, the fear-mongering from the federal administration did not um, expand into counting the population properly and therefore, to another extent, uh, possibly, you know, taking away money from um, these programs that were important to these communities. One of the best tools available to those working to get out the count nationwide was developed right here in New York. Right. So the hard-to-count map is basically a data map that was created by uh, CUNY's um, mapping department, community organizations from, um, from the, the previous census. They had already were trying to figure out ways to make their outreach more effective. So in that sense, it for for in order for them to do that, it was very helpful for them to have some sort of map or guidance showing what neighborhoods were more vulnerable to be undercounted. The Hard to Count 2020 map is available online and is free to use. Just go to censushardtocountmaps2020.us. And to end on a high note, there is one encouraging development in how you'll be able to fill out the census next year you can fill out the census online or through the internet. 